away from the house, getting my nails done just like any other Saturday morning. When I come home, I find Ashley's lettuce patch dolls in the bottom of the pool, with bricks tied to their little legs. I mean, do you have any idea how expensive these dolls are? Or how long I had to stand in line to get one? I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to another Songs from a 1980s Roller Rink Dumpster edition of In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, the series where we highlight some of the bands and music that either we felt didn't get the recognition they deserved or, in many cases, didn't get any attention whatsoever. John J. Thompson joins us again to chat about some more of his favorite overlooked artists from our favorite decade. And if you're unfamiliar with his name, Mr. Thompson, back in the 80s and 90s, ran a magazine called True Tunes, which focused on the spiritual side of music, both in the sacred and so-called secular realms. And our first band to pull out of our collective memories is The Alarm. Definitely part of that same 80s era of what we called the big music. You know, it was... Um, U2 is the biggest example, but not the first, and maybe not even the best in some ways. Tears for Fears were a big part of that thing, but The Alarm had much more edge than most of those bands, even more than U2. They definitely had a lot more of the punk kind of snarl, but never the punk nihilism or, and very melodic from the very beginning. But just this desperate caterwauling howl of, you know, I'm, I need to find some purpose in this world. And I mean, the first time I heard the alarm, I was immediately a fan. In fact, I remember going, I hope these guys are good for me because I'm going to be listening to this a lot. From Wales, right? Yeah, Wales. My buddy Kurt Dents, I will shout out to Kurt. He was a metalhead that went to church with me at the Episcopal Church. We grew up in youth group together. And he was a big fan of Iron Maiden and all that stuff. And and he and I would get together and listen to records and he would we'd take turns. He'd play a metal record, I'd play some Christian rock record, and he'd play a metal record. <laughs> and we would it was sort of a detente, you know, and I could learn more. He actually taught me a lot more about metal. And Iron Maiden were, were very well read when it comes to history. And it was it's epic. <laughs> exactly. And I mean it was the kind of thing where you could dismiss it because of the cartoonishness or whatever yeah, Eddie, which I had know. done. Yeah. And he was able to kind of challenge me. And then when I would say something about something sounding kind of you know girly or whatever, he'd bring Motorhead over. You know. But it was Kurt Dentz who said, have you heard of this band, The Alarm? And I said, I don't think so. And he goes, I think they're Christian, but they're not a Christian rock band. And so I went to the mall, to the record store, and started looking for The Alarm. And I think they just had a five-song EP out at that point. I popped it in and loved it from the first notes. Just loved it. I still couldn't tell you specifically what sort of theological worldview Mike Peters ascribed to, but he definitely tapped into all the right kind of angst for me. So this was not at the very beginning. I'm not like, you know, one of the early adopters of the alarm. It took a minute for them to make their way over here. We had a pretty good, couple of good college radio options in Chicago. So, so that's where you could hear stuff a little bit before. And there was a couple of good record stores that would sell imports. So I remember realizing by the time I found that record that there was other stuff that had come out. I had to go to this other record store to find some imports and things. And then they did a, a live thing on MTV where they played... And that was really impressive because you got to see them actually in action. Do you have a favorite song? Or? Well, the one that from early on, The Stand, you know, Come On Down and Meet Your Maker, Come On Down and Make a Stand. Really, I loved that. The 
but then I started to get into the, the, the Strength album, which I think actually either came out right after then or right around then, because again, I, I discovered a midstream, so I might not have heard it in order. The Strength album, Give Me Love, Give Me Hope, Give Me Strength, Give Me some point, Something to Live For, that song definitely became my favorite song for a while, and I listened to it all the time, and I wrote the lyrics out on all my you know, binders at school. Uh-huh. I think I wrote it on my jeans because it was like a credo. It was like a motto you could live by. Then there were other songs that I didn't understand what he was like. 68 Guns. I loved. I got the single of it. I got the 12-inch of it. I yeah, got what this is that song about? I don't know. Uh, in fact, I, I always said, if I ever get a chance to meet my peers, and I've met him and I forgot to ask him. 68 I assumed it was some kind of political unrest song, but then I realized he tends to write in myth and metaphor, I think, more than than Bono. Sunday Bloody Sunday was about an actual event that you could look up and find out, but 68 Guns or Where Were You Hiding When the Storm Broke? Oh my gosh, love that song, you know? Where were you hiding when the storm The alarm was all about calling out the hypocrisy. And he would use these, whether they were real events or mythological things he created, it still was like, which side of the line are we going to fall on? Like, each one of us is going to either be the good guy in the story or the villain. And it's way more villains than good guys. And we're totally outnumbered and we're probably going to go down in flames, but are you with us? And it's yeah. kind of got blaze that. of glory. Yeah. Right of it. Going yeah. out. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I even love the late 80s records. They started to get into some drum machines. They did a record called Eye of the Hurricane. Which is actually the first one I bought, and it's great. I oh my it, gosh. Yeah, the rain in the summertime. Oh. The shelter. Yeah. Come on and take me to the shelter. Shelter. Give me what I want tonight. Shelter. Shelter. Take me on a cover tonight. Shelter. Beautiful record. Uh, I know that some of the fans felt like it was too commercial. And they played it on MTV, which was cool. Mm-hmm. And Mike Peters would later on as a solo artist, do some more electronic stuff. Yeah, yeah. It, I guess that just at the time, it felt like they were swinging for the fences. They right. were going for the home run ball. But at the same time, then they put out, was it Raw? Raw and, came and was out one a before couple that, years later. Was there real was real oh, Change. Change. Oh, I yeah. love Change. Yeah. Man, I had a Sold Me Down the River was actually kind of almost a radio hit. I don't know. Those records, um, Eye of the Hurricane, Change, and Raw, to me, it was almost like getting whiplash. You were kind of going from Euro synth-based kind of big mainstream stuff to that epic U2 rattle and hum kind of thing to then some kind of flat-out blues bar rock of Raw. But there was things I loved about it. In fact, I think their version of uh, Neil Young's Rockin' in the Free World yeah, yeah. might be better than <laughs> Neil Young's version of it. Yeah. I, love, I love that. I didn't get to see them live until it was either the Change or the Raw tour. And a, a friend of mine, Becky, who worked with me at True Tunes and um, one of my closest friends, she was a huge Alarm fan. And so that was one of the things we bonded over early. And I remember we went and saw the Raw tour with our respective spouses, you know, and both of our spouses were kind of tolerating uh-huh. our slavish adoration <laughs> of the alarm. Now they broke up like in the, was it in the 90s maybe? Yeah, or? yeah early 90s. Yeah. It's funny, I when I got to finally meet them, the first time I met Mike, he was very 
distant and I did not feel like I had a meaningful conversation. But I got to sit at a table with Dave Sharp and Nigel and man, really nice, thoughtful, down-to-earth guys. I was really impressed with them. And What was the event of you sitting down with them? I don't know. I just got backstage at the show. Oh, it was that same night. My wife had a, had a full beer poured on her oh. and she was miserable and I was so caught up in how cool it was to be hanging out with the alarm that I was like lingering. Yeah, yeah they broke up. He did some solo stuff. In the Then he got a version of the alarm back together, none of the original backing guys, just Mike with different um, players. And we actually got them to play at Cornerstone. And so they're at the gallery stage, which was kind of like my home base mm -hmm. at Cornerstone. We finally got the alarm to play in, in around the early 2000s. And it wasn't the original alarm, fine, but it was still Mike Peters. They sounded great. And a bunch of us, like Doug Van Pelt from HM Magazine, Becky, me, a lot of us who were fans were just geeked out 15 year olds again yeah. just didn't care you know mike peters pulled a stunt with that when he put the band back together i don't know if you know this where oh yeah <laughs> where you know the the band couldn't get any radio play they right. were kind of old and has been at that point so he got a young band to be in the video and and they released that yeah i don't know if they changed the name or yeah. but basically it was the alarm right and it got played on the radio because yeah. there was all these young bucks on there yeah. Yeah. and he got really criticized yeah. for it yeah. and uh but then again, who He made a good point, cares? though. He made a great point. And there's a little film about that, isn't there? Like a little documentary? Yeah, I think so, on the YouTube. He did a thing where, you know, at one point, he was struggling. He's had some serious health battles, cancer, and oh. he keeps mm -hmm. fighting it back. And he's turned in and started this Faith, Hope, Love Foundation, or Love, Hope, Faith, based on the lyric of, of that song, Strength, that's all about raising money for people that are going through cancer and they do hikes together and it's very inspiring to see how he's lived this out and how he just keeps waving that flag nothing but respect for him super nice guy and one of those things where you go you know they never really broke through in america um they got really close and there was a strong underground following i would say that they got to about the point u2 was at with like before the unforgettable fire but they just were a little late because I think by the time the alarm was ready for their moment in the sun, the culture here had moved off of heart on sleeve, altruistic, positive, inspirational music. And we were looking for Guns N' Roses and Nirvana and, right. and they just, the alarm missed the, their moment. Right. You said you met Mike Peters another time? I just met him at South by Southwest a couple years ago. Okay. It was him solo with like a drum machine I feel like he had like a loop machine that would play the, and he had a kick drum he was hitting and an acoustic guitar and he sang all the hits and there was probably a hundred people in the club. I couldn't believe it. I was, I thought for sure I got to get there early and so I was right down front and um, he was just loading his guitar on the pool table right next to the stage so I got a chance to chat with him for a little bit. He's super nice. He has this way, I think, um, that you'd get when you've been doing this long enough to act like you remember everybody. Uh -huh. I knew he didn't remember me, but, oh, yeah. but we had a lot of enough friends in common that we could connect those dots. And, and I told him something that night about how his lyrics, the, the spiritual imagery meant so much to me as a Christian. And he very quickly interjected that it's universal. Like these are, these images and these things are not limited to just being Christian. He very forcefully, but gracefully kind of, corrected that these are to him bigger than just denominational or sectarian kind of ideas which of course they are so to me as a christian person especially as a kid i heard it as gospel music and it reinforcing my faith but his goal had always been that it would have this more general spiritual uplift regardless of what your background was i think that that was typical of the big music of the 80s you know the those groups all, Simple Minds and Tears for Fears and The Alarm and U2, uh, had that same kind of ethic. I heard it as being specifically Christian, but that was because that was the, what I brought to the mm -hmm. conversation.
Next up, After the Fire. Yeah, I was, uh, gosh, 14, I guess, when that song was a big hit, and I loved it, but I wasn't listening to the radio all that much at that point. I was kind of in record store land, and I, Der Commissar was kind of like Too Shy, you know, <laughs> by Kaja Gugu and other kind of hits that came out of nowhere in that European, British... Euro trash. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to say that. But yeah. I really liked it, and I remember hearing it at um, an amusement park, and um, they had a video jukebox at an amusement park probably cost a dollar to watch a video and I had never seen the video for After the Fire's Der Commissar so I paid a dollar to watch the video and then I was like okay this is interesting I'm gonna I'm gonna look into this band and again at this point I was already on the hunt for any kind of spiritual meaning and Der Commissar had none of that like there was nothing in it that made me think oh this might be a Christian band or something like that it was just a catchy song but then I think I must have either heard a rumor about it or somebody mentioned to me that they had been around for a long time and that they were Christians and had been doing music over in the UK and uh, and that got my attention because back then, honestly, I was a part of a group of people who were just desperate for any examples we could find of Christians doing thoughtful, interesting music that didn't only appeal to Christians. <laughs> like, right. was, like we had plenty of the, you know, Christian rock that was not interesting or exciting most of the time sometimes it was but most of the time it wasn't but when somebody in the real world mm -hmm. did it so the fact that the band that had the biggest song in the country that summer I mean it was number what three I, I don't think I went to number one but it was darn close I hear it on the case case and countdown you know mm -hmm. that that was somehow Christian I was really intrigued but the record was kind of hard to get I think what they did if I remember correctly is that CBS was their label and they had already put out several records and singles in the UK, but had never really done anything in the States. And so by the time Der Commissar comes around, the band was already on the ropes and almost over. And CBS kind of collected a bunch of their hits from the UK and put it on an album called ATF and put that album out here. My funny recollection of that was that uh, I heard that a Christian bookstore was selling that record. And I called and I talked to the guy and he had a reputation in the Chicago suburbs of having a lot deeper collection of independent, hard to find and European imports. His name was Mike Delaney and he was the music buyer at this otherwise completely ridiculous and boring Christian bookstore that I would never have wanted to go to. So I called and talked to him and he said, yeah, he had it. And I asked him if he'd hold it for me. And I want to say that it was going to cost with tax and everything about 10 bucks which was a lot of money to a 14 year old kid with no job. So, and it happened to be that his store was right near where one of my youth pastors lived. I told her about it and she definitely enabled my, along with her husband, um, at the time I think they were still just fiancés, but her eventual husband was my youth pastor and she was like the assistant youth worker at our Episcopal church. And then she would let me come over and listen to records all the time. Not Christian records. She had classic rock stuff. And I told her there was a record I really wanted, but I didn't have the money. And I was killing me. Like, I needed this record. I had to hear what else this band had. And she was like, oh, well, how much is it? And I said, 10 bucks. She's like, well, I could give you a job, and then you could earn 10 bucks. What? I was like, what? And she goes, and then I could take you over, and you could use it to buy the record. I like how she thinks, because uh, being a grandpa and you know, kids <laughs> just wanting money, I'm like... You know, and you, you see other kids that are, I mean, I'm going off on a tangent here, they're just giving money and then they end up in jail. Dude, I spent and hours <laughs> scraping tar off of her car. She had driven through a road that wasn't finished yet and got black tar mm -hmm. stuck all over her car. And I sat there and scrubbed the tar off of her car for what felt like an eternity it was probably an hour. And she paid me 10 bucks and drove me over to what was called the Zondervan oh, uh, yeah. bookstore. And I bought the After the Fire ATF album. We went back to her place and played the record and I just, oh, and that's right, because she had a way to tape really good quality tapes off of records. And I could listen to tapes a lot more than I could listen to records at home. So we taped it and I obsessed over that record. It was, it blew my mind. Der Commissar was in no way the best song on that record at all. They had been a prog rock band, actually, starting in the 70s. 
but they were a prog rock band with a lot of synthesizer, analog synthesizer stuff. So I wasn't as familiar with that, and they became kind of a gateway for me to discover this kind of world of analog synth progressive rock stuff. So it had elements of like Genesis and things like that, but it wasn't as guitar based as that stuff, or yes, it was much more keyboard based. Really cool arrangements, time signature changes, key changes, instrumental tracks, you know, that were just these sprawling, they sounded like a soundtrack to something that you'd never seen before. But I didn't realize at the time that that was basically a best of record. So then that guy at that store, Mike Delaney, told me about a little bit more about the band. And he had probably been following them as an obscure European example of a Christian band in the mainstream. And he'd been importing things and he was farther down that road than I was and he was an adult and I was 14 or whatever but by the time that record came out the original drummer had already quit and done a couple solo records his name was Iva Twidell the band was originally formed by this guy named Peter Banks who later changed his name to Memory Banks because there was another Peter Banks that was in like Yes or something like that incredibly so, clever I love yeah. it <laughs> so it's Memory a, Banks that's was, such an 80s Max Headroom yeah, kind of yeah, name right. but, yeah. so Memory Banks was the guy that started it and then I don't even remember all, there was a lot of changing of the lineup. So, but Andy Piercy was the singer. So to me, he was after the fire. Now, I later realized that, you know, Banks was a pretty important part of the songwriting and stuff. And it, with all that cool art rock stuff was really Peter Banks, Iva Twidell, there was other people. But Andy seemed to have the pop sensibility. Like he could take that crazy meandering prog rock stuff and actually make a pop song. Mm -hmm. What kind of line is that you in the UK, they had a song called One Rule For You. And I got the single of that from an import shop. And it knocked me out because One Rule For You is essentially them calling out the media in the UK saying, okay, so there's, you're saying that it's all about free speech and it's all about people speaking their mind unless I share my faith. And if I share my faith now, I'm supposed to shut up. So there's one rule for you and one rule for me. Wow. That blew me away. And then I thought, this isn't just a faith-based kind of, maybe they'll have some kind of general spiritual yearning. These were like pretty thoughtful Christians who were willing to stick a finger in the face of the culture. And, uh, and then there was more. There's Laser Love, uh, which I remember hearing it once or twice on a college station in the States, but I don't feel like it had any traction in the U.S., but that was another hit over there. And Laser Love, from my perspective, was a worship song. Your love is like a laser cutting right into my life. You know my weaknesses. You know, you cut me like a knife, separating the wrong from the right, just like a laser love. So it's that idea of the word of God and this love that divines right from wrong and flesh from spirit and bone. And thought that was really profound so I went down the rabbit hole and just I bought every single after the fire project I could find I feel like they toured in America once opening for Van Halen or something like that but there's no way I was gonna ever see that show I feel like there was a time they were gonna be playing in Chicago with a band I hated like either Van Halen or Bon Jovi or something like that and there's no way I could have gone anyway because I was too young to go to those kind of shows um, so I missed my chance to see them live. But then from what I read later, the label tried to get them back together to capitalize on this success because they had a hit and it just never really worked out. So I guess Andy ended up continuing the band for a little while, did a record that was maybe never released. Then there's an Andy Piercy solo record um, that I actually have that on the sticker it says X after the fire, or X ATF. Uh -huh. So it kind of was connecting people sure. that this was the guy from after the fire. I think that might've been the songs that he had recorded to become the after the fire record. I really liked it. Then, you know, they all scattered to the wind and it went away. The band has gotten back together for some reunions, different versions of it over the years. And I think they finally put a, 
a record out. It's hard to find their stuff. There's a live BBC Radio Sessions record I have that's really cool to hear that kind of synth rock stuff played live because now you would just hear sequencers, but these were actual people playing the songs. Personal funny story was that sometime in the mid-90s, maybe the late 90s, there was a guy that I had heard a lot about from England named Adrian Thompson. And being a Thompson, actually, we had a lot of friends in common because he had been in the UK, had a band called Split Level, and their band would back up a lot of American artists who went over and played big festivals like Greenbelt. And I remembered that After the Fire had played at Greenbelt. So had U2, so had Midnight Oil. Like that was a festival that was a Christian festival but with a much more expansive idea of what that might mean. And it turns out that some of the people involved in starting Greenbelt, at least one of them was the same that started Cornerstone Festival here nice. 10 years later. So I always romanticized Greenbelt and I knew that this guy, Adrian, I'd heard about him and he'd heard about me. So finally he was coming to America and Rick Elias and some other friends connected us and so we went and hung out and had a four-hour lunch you know in nashville here when i still i was down here visiting for something and we're talking about all this stuff and i'm geeking out we like the same kind of music we're about the same age we both kind of had the same like he was working for record companies and i was doing the true tunes thing and my band was a side thing his band was a side thing my band backed up some artists his, you know so we were kind of like each other's doppelganger mm-hmm. from across the pond and um, I had told him about how much I loved After the Fire, and he told me some stories about After the Fire. Well, then later on that week, he saw me somewhere. He's like, hey, John, I want to introduce you to somebody. And uh, I go, okay. And, and I go up, and he's like, hey, this is uh, Andy Piercy from, and before he even said from, I'm like, Whoa, and I totally got starstruck. I mean, I'm, at this point, I'm late 20s, and I've been in the business long enough that it, I didn't get rattled too easy. But when I met Andy Piercy from After the Fire, I completely geeked the heck out and he just so nice and smiling and i was like oh i totally was like that chris farley character yeah. in snl you know you remember when you did yeah. that <laughs> that was awesome yeah. and i told him about all the imports i had and all that kind of stuff and he was very gracious it turns out he's been doing church music he's been a worship leader and um, composing uh, music at a church here in america for years so he's still active and like i said they continue to get together and do some stuff unlike mr mr or one of these bands that sort of came together had big hits and then went away after the fire by the time they got their moment it was like a spark in the engine finally caught but they'd been cranking it too long Mm -hmm. and the tank was dry and um, the band was done and, and it was frustrating because what they did with synth music was so much more interesting than what I was hearing. I mean, I liked Depeche Mode and stuff like that, but that was so much more simplistic compared to what After the Fire was doing. I felt like even mainstream audiences should have had a chance to hear that. And it's a shame that they don't. And now even it's hard, like even on Spotify, it's hard to find. You can find the hits, but you can't find the really cool early stuff. And I still love Der Commissar. I still don't know what the heck. Uh, yeah, Why I'm they a chose Fal- to cover that song. Yeah, I'm a Falco fan. I, I had that original, his version too. You're a Falco fan, I am other a Falco than Amadeus, fan. the oh, only yeah, other song yeah. any of us ever heard. Yeah. By Falco. Because of Amadeus and Vienna Calling, I had that album, and then I went backwards. And it's great. I mean, it's really? if you love Synthy, groovy stuff. Who's gonna love you when you're old and fat and ugly? You ever hear that one? No. Who's gonna love you when you're old and fat and ugly? You know, it's just it's maybe Morrissey because he had that song called "I'm in love with you, fatty." <laughs> well, it's it's cool because it goes from this halftime verse to the of course. You better think about your running round, or you will finish up so lonely, lonely. <laughs> Total pop. It's basically saying, you know, I'm going to love you for the rest of your life. I know we're going to get old and fat and ugly. I don't care. But you right now are blowing it. You're going to miss out on that because you're running around because you're young and sexy, you know. And I love that. (laughs) 
by the way, my friend and frequent guest back with the woodpile, DJ Mindub, corrected me that the Morrissey song is in fact titled, You're the One for Me, Fatty. Before we get to our next segment, I just wanted to share a little factoid with you. According to multiple studies, the most effective material to use when attempting to gag a person is paper. But if you're planning to stuff paper into the mouth of a friend, family member, ex-lover, neighbor's noisy dog, or whoever in the future, you've got to be wondering and fretting, I'm sure, as to what is the best kind of paper to use. Well, amazingly, scientists say, and you know science is never wrong, the paper with the highest muffling capability is cash. That's right. It's in all of our pockets and purses. That said, if I spun counter guy and the guy you were planning to gag, we've made it easy for you. Just go to the In the Corner Back by the Woodpile Podbean page and click the Become a Patron button or send it via PayPal designating the email spuncounterguy at hotmail.com as the receiver. And every second we don't put up a new podcast, you'll know your cash did the trick. Okay, back to the show. And our last artist for this episode, Steve Taylor. Okay, so Mr. Steven Taylor. Not to be confused with Steven V. Taylor. No, please don't. (laughs) Steven V. Taylor, I mean, he did like choral musicals for the church or something like that. I made the mistake once as a kid being a super collector fan, finding something and thinking I'd found some rare Steve Taylor record. And, <laughs> ooh, I was surprised at what that was. Now, Steve Taylor, man, I would honestly say that there are probably three figures that have had um, the most profound influence on me in a lot of ways when it comes to creativity, philosophy, cultural engagement. Uh, and Steve Taylor is one of those three. Steve Taylor, Glenn Kaiser, and Charlie Peacock. I discovered Steve Taylor when he was opening for Res Band in Chicago. And this was one of maybe the first full-blown Christian rock show I ever went to. And it was the night that they were recording Res Band's live hostage album. And I was so excited. I just recently discovered this whole world of blatantly Christian but crazy cool rock stuff and res band was immediately my favorite band and so i could not believe i was going to get to see these guys play live well opening for them that night was this brand new artist that their label sparrow had just signed named steve taylor i he had an ep called i want to be a clone that i bought on vinyl that night so nobody had ever heard of him in fact i don't even think we had heard his song on the radio show yet Definitely wasn't there looking for this guy. Like, he just was the guy that played first. I would be hard-pressed to think that you would ever forget him if you heard him, because it's so out there. It is. Especially, I Want to Be a Clone, that whole album. Exactly. I gone through so much other stuff than walking down the aisle was tough, but now I know it's not enough. I want to be a clone. I asked the Lord into my heart. They said that was the way to start, but now you've got to play the part. I want to be a clone. I was floored. I really loved the Talking Heads and the Clash and New Wave kind of stuff and classic rock. And so Rez I liked from the classic rock perspective. And when they hear a guy named Steve Taylor, when you hear a person's name yeah. and it's not a band, yeah, I'm like, oh, lame. man, <laughs> this is going to suck. Yeah. I'm going to have to listen to some, some guy. youth pastor sing you know, acoustic <laughs> yeah. guitar songs about... <laughs> not kissing your girlfriend or something. I was so not, <laughs> I, was, I was not excited yeah. to hear that there was an opening artist named Steve Taylor. Right. And then he comes out there and immediately it's like, you know, do, 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 this total pogo kind of new wave synth digital drums kind of thing. And he comes out there and I was sitting way back. I wasn't up front. And um, I see this skinny, tall guy really awkwardly dancing and coming out on stage. And it just totally captivated me. And so I left my seat and I kind of pushed down front. I don't know if it was supposed to be the last song, but at some point he does I Want to Be a Clone. But all these people start filling up the stage and they're all wearing lab coats and masks. Those kind of semi-transparent masks, you know. Creepy 
yeah. look and thing. And plus, he must have had, I don't know, 10 or 20, maybe more people that walked out on stage. It was it felt like something out of the Twilight Zone. And then he sings this song that was so punk in its attitude, you know. And I totally got that he's literally making fun of religious types who want everybody to conform. Be a clone and kiss conviction but night. Cloneliness is next to godliness. Right. I'm grateful that they showed the way because I could never know the way to serve him on my own. I want to be a clone. By the second time through it, the whole chorus is chanting, I want to be a clone. Mm -hmm. And so he's filled the stage with all these clones. Yeah, yeah first, I remember first hearing that record and being a little confused because I was like, I took him literally. I said, does he really want to be a clown? <laughs> like, no, I definitely it, didn't. I mean, it, it took me a minute because I, I, I wasn't that bright. And, 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 That's uh, funny, though. But, yeah. I, yeah. No, I, you could tell live this was satire. Yeah. And I had really not ever experienced Christian satire like that. And I always had loved humor as a... I mean, growing up looking at Mad Magazine and watching mm -hmm. Saturday Night Live and... It's like it to me humor is a very powerful subversive weapon a politician next door swore he set the washington arena on fire they radiate him but they're gonna make him a liar well he's a good old boy who was born and raised in the buckle of the bible belt so i loved it and i bought the record that night and as i did with every record i obsessed over it i played it until it was practically smooth and and then discovered that basically this guy steve taylor is kind of like where did he come from mm -hmm. he started a career where he has always been a little too smart and a little too real for the christian music world but a little too committed to his spiritual worldview for the rest of the world right. And, uh, you know, so he's kind of the mayor of Steve Taylor town and I've been a citizen ever since. It's like, I just kind of set him in my sights as a role model. I'm, I'm not even kidding. Like when I would read interviews with him or whatever, I thought, okay, this is exactly who I want to be in my life. Mm -hmm. Whether it was like, I wanted to do that kind of music. It wasn't, you want to be a clone of Steve Taylor. I wanted to. Yes. <laughs> and what's funny is, um, I was just thinking about this, this weekend that so the, the EP came out and then Meltdown, the album came out. And so the single was Meltdown at Madame Tussauds. And so I had to look up what Madame Tussauds, it's a wax museum. It's all, and it's, it's a pretty scathing uh, look at how far celebrity will get you in the afterlife, <laughs> you know? Bad boy McEnroe couldn't keep his cool. Now he's with the rest of them waiting in the pool. Howard Hughes billionaire says the written guide. Pity that his assets have all been liquefied. And there was a couple lines I, I was bothered by his Dylan maybe filling the poly design. Is it going to take a miracle to make up his mind? I was like, hey, dude, you know, back off Dylan, yeah. man. <laughs> Who said that? You know, because I was already such a huge Dylan fan. And I thought that he was oversimplifying what Dylan was trying to do. Yeah. But by and large, you know, it was full of pop culture references. Well, we can, I mean, I know you're probably buds with them and everything, but, th but that's sometimes cynics, having been one, we do tend to oversimplify. For the sake of comedy or the sake yes. of, of, you know, trying yes. to get everything in a three-minute song. Yes. And sometimes we're a little unfair. I think like Twitter is another yeah. way where yeah. people can come off sounding like a total jerk because totally. they only have like 140 right. Right, right, characters. Right, right. Elvis and the Beatles have seen a better day. Better off to burn out than to melt away. Dylan may be villain, the puddle they designed. Is it gonna take a miracle to make up his mind? On the other hand, We Don't Need No Color Code was huge for me because I honestly, as messed up as my childhood was, my family did not raise me with any kind of racial prejudice. Like, mm -hmm. I had to learn about... But you're partly well, racially we, mixed. we didn't know that. I mean, yeah. there's some possibility that somebody on my biological father's side was African-American. I've seemed to have uh, some genetic history there, but it's yeah, not, that yeah. wasn't why. They, you got something in the wood nobody, pile. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nobody, yeah. nobody knows. That's more of legend and uh, oh, okay. who knows. But I'm just saying my family did not raise us with that kind of thing. Right. And so when that song came out, We Don't Need No Color Code. And that was about Bob Jones, you know? Yeah, yeah. And he says, you know, down in Carolina way lived a man named a Big BJ. Mm -hmm. BJ went and got, no, I thought BJ meant something else. BJ went and got a school founded on Caucasian rule, bumper sticker on his Ford says, honkies if you love the Lord. And I remember going, what is he talking about? Like, yeah. I knew about the civil rights era and I knew about Martin Luther King. and But I was like, this sounds like 
he's who's BJ? And and I had to do some research and find out there was a Christian college then, right then and there, mm-hmm. that was preventing. They had a rule against interracial dating yeah. on campus. They even had sidewalks designated, I guess, for guys and girls separate from each other. Yeah. That was an eye opener to me that yeah. like right now in this day and age, this is still a thing. And that was Steve Taylor that did that. White man speak with forking tongue. White supremists eat their young. Bigotry is on the loose. Ignorance is no excuse. I know Jesus loves that man. Even with a Greenville tan. It was just, he kind of had a rotation throughout the record of exposing hypocrisy and mocking it at times, lamenting it at other times. Mm-hmm. Baby Doe was the song, this really quiet, sad song about a baby that was born and then left to starve to death. And that was a true case. How can you ignore this baby has a voice? I bet the blame. His, his, I know his dad was a pastor, I think. His dad and his boy, his dad is sweet. I got to meet him last year in L.A., sweet guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you can kind of see how Steve was raised in an environment where he was allowed to be creative and experimental. And he wasn't rebelling against his own background, per se. As he traveled and it was exposed, he was just kind of shining a light on things. And he would use humor for his most damning comments but then he also would turn it around. And so Sin for a Season was a dark, <laughs> powerful, dark song. There's a sweaty hand handle and his cocktail napkin. Come on and see me scribbled with a gold pen. But you better read twice. And then the song Hero was, I wanted to call that one out because it's talking about being a little kid and using comic books as a way to escape a, a rough childhood. But then the, the chorus is Hero, it's a nice boy notion that the real world's gonna destroy. Hero, it's a Marvel comic book Saturday matinee fairy tale boy. Hero. But then this kid grows up and he wants to be a hero. He's got to be a hero. And that literally, that song still gives me chills when I think about it. I was 14 years old, 15 years old, coming out of a really rough patch as a kid. And I was like, I do want to be a hero. It wasn't like I want to be a rock star. Like it wasn't about I want the chicks and the drugs and the party and the mansion. But I wanted to be a hero like Steve Taylor was being a hero to me. And I don't think that's how he wrote it or what he meant by it. But that's how I heard it. It was like you know what, I need a hero. And Glenn Kaiser and Steve Taylor and these people are becoming my heroes. And I want to be a hero like that, which meant not so much I want to be a famous rock star. It meant I want to just have an impact that will last, that will some other kid will feel displaced. I can encourage them. So moving on, like the on the Fritz record seemed like it was more uh, taking a shot at trying to have some uh, mainstream I think one of the guys, Ian, what's his name, that produced Foreigner, worked on it. The Meltdown tour came to Chicago. I was 14, I guess, 13 or 14. And um, the Christian radio station that was promoting it decided to do something fun. And they said they're going to have a lip sync contest. Boys would be lip syncing to Meltdown by Steve Taylor. Girls would be lip syncing to a Sheila Walsh song. Mm-hmm. And they were touring together. And then we all had to go to this church or, or like the chapel church at a Christian college to audition. Top three males, top three females would go and actually get to do their lip sync on stage at the Steve Taylor show between the opening act and Steve Taylor. So my aunt Marnie took me to the auditions and she helped me make this outfit. I made these overalls that were kind of tearaway overalls. We used like duct tape so that mm-hmm. I could rip them off. And then underneath I was wearing my version of a white Steve Taylor suit. I had a mop head that I could kick off and turn it into a mic stand and use as a prop. So she took me out there and I, I did the lip sync 
competition. And I actually was chosen as one of the top three. So there's actually footage on YouTube of me at 14 years old on stage at the Odium in Villa Park. And one of the other two kids actually won and I had the experience and I got to meet Steve Taylor and, and I was so thrilled. Well, the next year on the Fritz comes out and the radio station does another competition. They said, it was the it was the concert promoter's birthday, and so they said we're gonna make sandwich boards, which are like with the end of the world kind of thing. Like you put the one side on your front, one side on your back. To one side had to be to promote Steve Taylor, the other to promote Harvest Productions, the concert promoter's fifth birthday. The Steve Taylor side, I literally hand painted the on Fritz album cover, writ large, like you know, four feet by three feet or whatever that large poster board size is. No reproduction, no photocopies. It was literally hand-drawn, that cover of On the Fritz. I spent at least 200 hours on that thing. The backside was the birthday thing. I didn't even care about that. I, I drew a birthday cake and I wrote Happy Birthday Harvest Productions. But you could tell I did that in about 20 minutes. But the Steve Taylor side was a freaking work of art. They did the competition at a Christian bookstore and I took it and I didn't even get in the top 10. Oh, man. But I got to go up to the table and have Steve sign it. And Steve looked at me, he's like, you look familiar. And I said, oh, you know, my name's John. He's like, this is really cool. He could tell that I painted it. I think he could tell that even though it didn't have something crazy or witty, probably more hours went into it. And he's like, this is really great. And uh, he said, I would have definitely put this in the top 10. And I said, well, can you write that on it? So he signed it for me. He goes, John, I definitely would have put this in the top 10, Steve Taylor. I, I told him I had been in the lip sync contest. He's like, that's it. He goes, you're the one kid that didn't come to the party afterwards. I was like, what party? He's like, yeah, everybody, we had a pizza party for all the finalists, and you were the one kid that didn't come, and I wanted to tell you I really liked your the way Aww. you did it. And he goes, maybe I even stole a couple of your moves for my show, which <laughs> you know, I doubt he ever did, but right. it blew my mind, and I was like, I could have had pizza with Steve Taylor, and I missed the chance. My life's over. Kills on the The uh, record, I Predict 1990, was just perfect. Every song in that thing was perfect. and Which I, brought a little bit of a balance. That's one thing I appreciate. If you take all his career and you look like there's a lot of yin and yang. And so you have Lifeboat, right. which is obviously about the sanctity yeah. of life. Right. But then you have, I blew up the, the clinic real good, where he, he goes after the other extreme, which right. are killing in the name of right. the unborn. Every song on I Predict 1990 is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those records where you just go... I and mean, I learned the word Svengali. Svengali. Which I never heard again until a Seinfeld episode. I'll tell you what, Steve definitely got me reading books uh-huh. and looking at things that he was so intelligent in what he referenced. Mm-hmm. Young and the Restless was mm-hmm. another one. I went to my dad who had studied a lot of that stuff and I said, what is Young? What is Carl Young? What does this mean? And he's like, oh, here. And he found a book oh, yeah. that was like... So I got what he meant by Primal Scream and... Freud and all that kind of stuff. Harder to believe than not to, though, on that record is just one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard. Interesting, the female voice in that is Fleming McWilliams, who later became part of Fleming and John. Fleming and John, amazing 90s group, husband and wife, uh, and John Mark Painter, and he's currently in Steve Taylor's new band, Steve oh, really? Taylor and the Perfect Foil, which put out a record last year that is arguably his best record he's ever done, which is saying something. Mm-hmm. And his band was Jimmy A. Begg, who had been in Vector and Charlie Peacock's groups and Rich Mullins, John Mark Painter, playing bass, of all things, and Peter Furler, formerly of the Newsboys, uh, playing drums. And- Keep your nose up, attitude's king. When you get hit, you won't feel a thing. Then he did a record that a lot of people don't know about where he got together with members of other bands and created a band called Chagall Guevara that was signed to MCA. Wade James on bass, Lynn Nichols Mm -hmm. played in that band, Dave Perkins, Mike Mead was the drummer, Mm -hmm. uh, and Steve. But the Chagall Guevara record, I think 1989, again, perfect record, like flawless record. (laughs) 
Pump up the volume. They has, use the Chagall song. I yeah, think. Tell the Twister, which is not on the album. In '94, I actually, when Squint came out, Warner Alliance was his label at that point. They had a competition for retailers, retailers to make a Steve Taylor display, and whoever got the best display built in their store got tickets to go see the Super Bowl with Steve Taylor. Now the whole shtick there was he had a song called Banner Man that's all about the guy that holds up the John 316 mm -hmm. sign with the rainbow wing. Don't you worry about the flag you get Aren't you scared of getting busted The ball gets booted It hits the crossbeam Up goes the banner John 316 And again, he manages to turn a song that could have been a total joke mm -hmm. into an actually sweet, thoughtful, yeah. funny song. It's satirical, but but sweet. Um, There's some grace there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so now here's my third chance to enter a Steve Taylor competition, <laughs> and I am not going to blow it this time. So I turned our entire True Tune store into a Steve Taylor display. Like, from outside in, it was like you were walking into a Steve Taylor display. I'm like, no one will beat me this time. I will not be undone. It was just like I was 14 again, yeah. but now I've got a record store. And I won. I got tickets to the Super Bowl. My dad and I flew here to Nashville from Chicago. We got on a tour bus with Steve and the band and Russ Long, who was his sound guy, who was also Bannerman. We drove to Atlanta and watched the Super Bowl with the Dallas Cowboys, and it was so fun. On the way home on the tour bus, I got on my bunk, and I could not stand it because I'm kind of a little bit, just a tad bit claustrophobic, and I'm a little taller than a lot of people, so I didn't feel like I fit on the bunk, and I was in it for about five minutes. I'm like, nope. I jumped off my bunk and went up to the front lounge, figured I'd just lay on the couch up there. Well, Steve also got up and he came out and joined me and we sat there and we're just talking and you know, reminiscing and telling him how cool it was. Like, I mean, yeah, we're, we're buds or whatever, but still, I'm not going to lie. It's freaking awesome that I'm here on a tour bus with Steve Taylor. When a 14-year-old me would have wet his pants twice and had a stroke if I'd known right. that that was ever going to happen. And I told him some about the influence he had and I probably already told him that stuff by then. And we started talking, I said, your early stuff, man, it was, at this point, it was all out of print. You couldn't find it. I said, you need a box set. You need to choose the best songs and put out a box set. He was like, well, tell me what, what should be on it. And I told him and the whole approach and packaging and everything. A couple weeks later, he called me and said, hey, you know what? And I realized this conversation had already been ongoing, but he said, I talked to Sparrow, the label, and um, we're going to do the box set and we want you to help. So oh, wow. I kind of got executive production credit cool. on that. And this is something I'll say as well is that Part of the gig was to write the liner notes, exhaustive liner notes, tell the whole story. Mm. It was called Now the Truth Can Be Told. And um, I wrote it. I did a long interview with Steve. I thought it was pretty good. And he was pushing back like it could be better, it could be better, it could be better. And I kept working on it, working on it, but I wasn't quite getting the same attitude and thing that he was looking for. And I was frustrated because I wanted it to be great. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I was writing everything in True Tunes. Everybody loved that. I'd never had anybody say, you can do better. It was humiliating, to be honest. I mean, I was deeply chagrined that he it wasn't a home run. He ended up having Chris Willman, who's an amazing rock journalist from L.A., write those liner notes and they used mine as a starting off point and then Chris improved it. Yeah. And so if you go back and find that now the truth can be told box and you read those liners, they're great. Yeah. Every so often in there, if I read it, I can see parts I wrote, but for the most part, Chris reworked it. And Chris was a much better writer than me. Yeah. And what it did You're was- a big it, man to admit that. Well, at the time, I'll admit, I was ashamed. I was, but it made me say, you know what? What is it that he did better than me? Mm -hmm. And I started to study it. And around the same time, uh, editor from New York found True Tunes and she became my kind of personal writing coach and mm -hmm. I would fax everything I wrote to her and mm -hmm. she would edit it and send it back and so I started to really learn. But Steve had that effect where it's like if this if I'm not good enough as a writer, I'm gonna dig in and I wanna make sure the next time the opportunity comes along. So I really credit him in that regard, very practically being an influence. What's, what's amazing to me about Steve amongst, uh, it's like every 
aspect of what he did, he was so good at. Like, so mm. as an artist, he really has a gift for film. But then there's also this time in the 90s when he focused on being a record producer. So he produced the Newsboys, which the Newsboys were one of the most terrible bands I had ever heard. I mean, they were, <laughs> I'm just serious. Like, yeah. and in fact, the first Newsboys <laughs> tour in America, my band opened for them at our church in Aurora. Is that back when they were doing a lot of comedy stuff? And like, they had they like- They thought it was comedy, I suppose. Yeah, it no, was real is, corny. It was, their first album was called Read All About It. And it was just, ugh. so the first tour they played uh, in the States, my band opened for them. And it's a long story, I'll right, tell you right. another time. Didn't go well. <laughs> and I really had a bad <laughs> attitude towards the Newsboys. Second time they toured, we were supposed to open for them. We didn't even want to do it, but the promoter was a friend who uh -huh. needed a local band to help draw some people. And, we did it, and it was even worse than the first one. And uh, it was they ended up flipping it so that the Newsboys opened for us because the promoter was so mad. So I basically, the Newsboys are one of the few bands at this point that I just don't even want to hear them mentioned, uh -huh. right? And then I find out Steve Taylor's going to produce the Newsboys, and I was so bummed out. I was like, dang it, he'll make that band sound good. They don't deserve Steve yeah, yeah. Taylor. I was indignant. And then I was coming to Nashville. It was one of the first trips I ever made to Nashville. Uh, I spent a week here just visiting people on behalf of True Tunes. And somebody heard that I was here and they called me and they said, hey, Steve Taylor's working on a Newsboys video and he'd really like for you to come to the set to visit. And I was like, why in the world would I want to go watch the right. Newsboys make it? But Steve Taylor's there. Yeah. So I was, it was literally the worst because Nothing cooler than Steve Taylor, nothing worse than the Newsboys. I was stuck in this, you know, tension. But I decided if Steve specifically had invited me to come, I was going to go right. because he's Steve Taylor. Right. So I went. They even arranged to pick me up and take me to this thing. So I didn't have to, because I don't think I had a car. So there was some big water pumping station. And uh, it was impressive to see this crazy, real water thing that they were filming in. It was very impressive. And I was hearing the song, little bits of it over and over again, but I still hadn't heard the record, but I knew it would probably be good. And I was irritated. But Peter Furler pulled me aside and we went for a little walk and, and he said, uh, he goes, man, he goes, I don't even remember what I did. He goes, but I've been a jerk to a lot of people thinking I was funny. And he said, I feel like I did something that was probably offensive to you. And I just wanted to apologize. Wow. And I was slack jawed. And, so I told him what it was that he had done and he laughed and I laughed and then, you know, we've been buddies ever since. And, and I realized that like a lot of us, you know, Peter started off at one point and he needed role models and people to kind of help him. And he's become a fantastic artist and songwriter. And Steve was a real mentor to him. And they wrote most of those great Newsboys songs, which cheese or no cheese, they're really, really Steve Taylor's records in the nineties, other than Squint were Newsboys records. It just had a different band and a different singer. But when you listen to a lot of those songs, you hear that humor, the right. rapid fire lyrical approach. What are we sneaking around for? Who we trying to please? Shrugging off sin, apologizing like we're spreading some kind of disease. I'm saying no way. So the best Newsboys stuff, of course, this has nothing to do with the current version of the but that was Steve. So great as an artist, great as a songwriter, then great as a producer. He took Guardian, you know, this kind of hair metal band. And under Steve's influence, then they actually kind of hit another gear of creativity. And they were, they were a good band, you know, just dressed as posers, but they weren't. And Steve did some great records with them. Then he starts a label. And... His label, the first band out the gate, is Burlap to Cashmere, which was a great band, did some great stuff. Then Sixpence None the Richer has the biggest song in the world, oh, yeah. and Steve produced that. And then he goes into films and now he's back to doing music and making films and he's kind of can do whatever it is that he chooses he wants to do and he's teaching which is what he's been doing all along he just wasn't getting paid for it but after doing the goliath record then he does a record last year with danielson you know dan smith from that really quirky weird the danielson band, family, the danielson family. He, it's called instead of steve taylor and the perfect foil which is the name of his current band it's steve taylor and the danielson foil it's that weird 
Dan Smith stuff, but with Steve and Jimmy and Peter, and and it was produced in Chicago. It was a battle to bring me around. Suddenly lilies appeared in the ground. I was too far out to know where to hit. Cut to the heart, it's the one perfect fit. Odd, and it's not the easiest record to listen to, but it's still pushing. He's experimenting and taking some risks, and right. you know, so I'm still I'm as big a fan as I've ever been. If you'd like to hear more of John J. Thompson, you can check out the In the Corner Back with the Woodpile podcast, episode 78 and episode 83, or you can go to his website, which is www.33andathird.net which is the numbers 33-A-N-D-A-T-H-I-R-D.net In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Yeah.